0: Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Knowing Jesus is the
1: best gift that any person can receive. That we have encountered Him is the best thing that's happened in our lives, and making Him known by our word and deeds is our
0: greatest joy. Father Ricardo conducted a four evening mission on personal evangelism. On this second night of the mission, he centered his talk on God's saving grace and the many gifts He showered upon us. Father Ricardo continues this mission with his second talk. What does God expect from us? Evening, everybody. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of
1: the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we praise and thank you for the gracious gift of this day, for the great blessing that is life. Thank you that in your great love for us, you have called us into being, that out of your extraordinary kindness and mercy, you have sent your Son as one like us to speak to us about you to suffer and to die for us, to make it possible for us to share in your own divine, eternal life forever. Father, we pray that you would continue to send the gift of your Holy Spirit upon all of us, even as you poured out the Spirit upon the apostles and our lady on the day of Pentecost. Help us more and more, however old or young we may be, to know your Son, not only to know about him, but to know him. Give us the courage that we need in this world which is so often dark to bear witness to him First by how we live and second by the words we speak Father we are mindful that you have set us afire on the day that we were baptized and placed within us your spirit Let us not allow ourselves to be covered up by some sort of bushel basket but use us Place us on a stand in the house. That is the world in which we live so that somehow through us others might see you And come to know what we're really made for. All these things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady of good counsel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The song we sang is uh, known as the Song of Augustine. Augustine is one of the greatest human beings who ever lived. Truly, one of the greatest human beings who ever lived. Whose mother, as we may or may not know, was a woman named Monica who for some 33 years of his life prayed incessantly for him. Augustine gets somewhat of a bad rap. He gets characterized as somebody who was enamored of the sins of the flesh. He had a mistress for much of his life. This will sound strange, but he was faithful to his mistress. He wasn't so much enamored with the flesh. He was somebody who was relentlessly in pursuit of truth, something to live for, and he couldn't find it. couldn't find it until largely because of Monica's prayers, he first heard the music of the Christians singing in the church in Milan, and then second heard the preaching of the bishop of Milan, whose name was Ambrose. And Augustine finally found Jesus, thanks to his mother's prayers and thanks to the light shining through Ambrose and through the men and the women who were the faithful in Milan, and and then he went on to write voluminously and to preach voluminously. He used to preach a long time. I mean, you think we preach long. People walk out going, hey, Mass was an hour and five minutes, Father. Who in the world said Mass was supposed to be an hour? Where does it say that? You don't walk out of the hockey game going, man, I went to overtime. What a drag. <laughs> what a terrible game. Why couldn't it have been over in the first period? Back in the day in the 400s, when Augustine preached, he preached for... 40 minutes, an hour and a half, without a mic. So if you think I'm clipping out back there, you can only imagine what it was like for Augustine. Anyway, that song comes from his Confessions, which was the first autobiography ever written. So the first autobiography ever written was written by a man who wanted to bear witness to what Jesus had done. No one had ever written an autobiography before. And that's the beginning of the Confessions, which if you've never read, are really worth reading. And in there he says, Our hearts, Lord, are restless, it actually begins with, Lord, thou hast made us, it's translated, for thyself. The Latin's actually a little bit stronger than that. It's more like, Lord, you've made us in such a way that we're inclined to you. That's how you've created us. You've created us with this tremendous longing for you, this inherent restlessness. And we will always be restless until finally we rest in you. And I know of no better song for what we're trying to do than that one. So thanks to Janet for sharing her story. I think it's so great. You know, someone starts talking, everybody looks around going, where is she? (laughs) It's one of the reasons the lights are low and you can't see. But it's also perfect because that voice is you. That's the whole point. That's every man and every woman speaking about what God has done. All those who are members of the evangelization team at Our Lady Good Council, if you'd stand. I won't point out which one's Janet and which one's Mary. I want to thank and uh, to honor and acknowledge all of them in a particular way and for their work, for their prayers that have been going on for the mission and for their ongoing work for us as a parish family. Thanks, all of you, very much. You can sit. Now, I really do want to thank the four of them, but there's a small little problem that just happened. Because I just asked the evangelization team to stand, and four people stood. You're the evangelization team. Every single person in this church who was a member of Our Lady of Good Council, you're the evangelization team at Our Lady of Good Council, not these four people. Who, to be sure, are doing some significant work, but Jesus didn't say, you are the light of the world to the four of them, and to me, and to Father of Servo, and Father White and Father Stanley and Deacon Vince and Deacon Tim and Deacon Don. He said it to all of us. We are the evangelization team. And if you belong to another parish, you're the evangelization team at the parish where you belong to. And hopefully that will become clearer and clearer to us. Not from me, but from the Holy Spirit just convicting us of that. Not sure about you. I thoroughly enjoyed today. It's March. The month that shall not be named is over. I didn't understand why February is a part of our calendar. I never understood a <laughs> Valentine's Day, but that really doesn't mean much for me. So um, <laughs> at least not anymore. The sun was shining. Of course, March means not only the advent of spring, it also means the feast day of somebody who's near and dear to many of us, not just the Irish, St. Patrick. Patrick is like Augustine, one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived. It's not a legend that Patrick almost single-handedly converted Ireland. That's a truth. By virtue of this one man who was deeply in love with Jesus, the peoples of that island came to know him and to become one of the real beacons of Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years. We have two holy cards One is a picture of the little lamps that are burning up here, which is the theme of the mission, the one that says turning up the flame. And then there's another one that just has a picture of our crucifix, which hangs here in the center of Our Lady of Good Counsel. On the back of both of those is that quote from Pope Benedict that we thought about last night that we need lights close by to help us come to know the light that is Christ. But on the front of the one that has our crucifix on it is a shortened version of a prayer, which is... Attributed to St. Patrick. You might know this. The shortened version says simply this Christ be in the eyes of all who see me, in the ears of all who hear me, on the lips of all who speak of me. Christ be in the minds of all who think of me. Christ be in the hearts of all who love me. Christ be before me and behind me. Christ be above me and beneath me. Christ on my right and on my left. Christ be my all. That prayer is, to my mind anyway, one of the best summaries that I know of of how we're supposed to approach each day, every day. Because it reminds me that I am called and you are called to be an intentional disciple of Jesus. That is somebody who has as his or her goal each day for others to see him in us. I pray repeatedly and encourage others, I know others do the same, just to ask the Lord to help me to get out of his way. It reminds me that we're all called to, like Paul, live a life in such a way so that we bear witness to the conviction that we have that nothing can outweigh the advantage of knowing Jesus. Nothing. No one. That's the difference that he can make. I mentioned last night a little bit about expectations. Expectations. I'm increasingly of the mind that expectations are really critical in life. I'm a little frustrated right now with this new assignment that I've taken on for the Archdiocese of Detroit because I really have no idea what the expectation is. Those of you who might have taken on new assignments at work yourselves, if the expectation isn't clear, you get frustrated. You're writing a paper for a teacher at school and you really don't know what it is that she's asked you to write, you get frustrated. You're playing a basketball team and You didn't quite grasp the play and you don't know what's expected of you on this. You get frustrated or confused. Even in marriage, we get frustrated. We're not sure what's expected of us sometimes. Within friendships, we're not sure what's expected of us sometimes. Sometimes people have expectations of us that are too lofty. Sometimes people don't have expectations of us that are lofty enough. This prayer of Patrick, the reason I use it again tonight and pray with it again tonight is because it's as good a summary as any that I know of anyway to remind us of what's expected of us. It also has the further advantage of being really short. The whole St. Patrick's breastplate is not short, but this part's short, which means it's easy to memorize, and it's worth memorizing this. I begin every day praying this. It's what I pray as I get out of bed and make my way to the shower. It helps just set a focus for the day right off the bat. It reminds me what I'm about and what I really desire. And if I don't happen to desire that, it forces me to desire that. Christ be my all. It's worth trying yourselves. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about, as I mentioned last night, what God expects of us. And tomorrow night I want to talk a little bit about the obstacles for these expectations to happen, as well as a couple of remedies that we can try. And then to wrap up on Wednesday, when we have our uh, concluding mass and the last night of the mission, I want to talk a little bit about some concrete things or ways that we can go about making God's expectations of us happen. So what does God expect? Think about that for a moment. What does God expect of you? Maybe you could ask it this way. What does God want You ever stop to ask, why did God bother to make us? If you haven't, it'd be worth doing that. Why have you bothered to make us? This creature that so often takes you for granted, forgets you, curses you, offends you, ignores you. Why did you bother to make us? One of the gifts of Lent is it's this you know, long season to reflect on different things. This is one of those things that might be worth reflecting on. Lord, why did you bother to make me? Well, certainly one way to answer the question is found in Paul's letter, his first letter to his friend and his co-worker, whose name is Timothy. And there in uh, Timothy, he writes, inspired by God, huh? God desires that all men be saved. Not just males, huh? All human beings be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. That everybody be saved. What's that mean? Be saved. Doesn't mean my soul. If, you know, we're thinking here like some little floating thing inside me that's going to live forever and then the body's going to get discarded. God's desire is that I would be, certainly, ultimately, that I would get home, huh? That you and I and everybody on the face of the earth would get home. We'd get to heaven. But he desires that we would be put back together together. There's a root connection between salvation and health. You all remember the little nursery rhyme of Humpty Dumpty? Well, we're Humpty Dumpty. That's us. We fell off the wall. We're broken. Don't believe that? Ask your spouse. Or ask your children. They'll tell you. Ask your friends, real friends, who have the courage to say that. We're all broken. You know, I'm okay, you're okay. That's nonsense. I'm a mess, you're a mess. Let's just deal with it. Some of us are just obviously messier, but we're all a mess. The only line in the Gospels that should have been there, which isn't there, I hope the Holy Spirit doesn't strike me right now, but, you know, where Jesus says, it's not healthy people who need a doctor, sick people do. And then the next line should have been, and you're all sick. Every single one of you. And that's not like pointing a finger at us and accusing us. That's just the reality. We're all sick. We're all in need of being healed in so many ways. I'm in need of being healed in so many ways. And to be saved, certainly, again, ultimately has to do with getting home, but it has to do something even now. The Lord wants me now to be put back together, to be healed in all the different ways that I need to be healed. God's desire is not that you and I would get some information and then pass it on. That's not what this is about. God's desire is that you and I would get some transformation, that you and I would be transformed that our lives would be totally changed as a result of knowing him in a way that only a friendship can change our lives. Take that to the negative. Some of us here have lost to death great friends. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you lost your best friend. One of my best friends died three years ago now. My life's forever different. There's a huge hole. It was once very rich. It's now got a huge gap. It has a huge gap because friendship makes all the difference in the world. Those of you who've lost a spouse know that more than anybody or a child. That can be helpful to think about what it is the Lord can do because the Lord made that person who was my spouse or my child. And if the creature that he made could do so much for me, then how much more must he be able to do for me? Who made that person? Same Augustine in a a line I quote often, you know, Augustine used to say, we're all like brides, or at least at times we're like brides who wake up the day after their wedding and just stare at the ring. They go, wow, that's a really cool ring. And they forgot the guy who gave the ring. And that happens to us over and over again in life. God just blesses us with countless gifts. But every gift he gives, especially when the gifts are people, are so good because he doesn't make junk. That they run or they have within them the inherent risk of eclipsing the giver. But hopefully the ring isn't what really attracted the woman to the man or the man to the woman. It was the person. What salvation's about is coming to know the person who gave all the gifts that we have that have so changed our lives. His desire is that you and I would come to know the difference that he alone makes in life. The difference that comes from knowing I have not evolved out of the slime to no purpose going nowhere, but I've been created by someone who is infinitely and recklessly loving. Reckless in the sense not of being careless, reckless in the sense of giving everything away. He's created me out of love. He's created you out of love. I'm not subject to some blind forces of fate. My life's got a plan, a purpose. It's going somewhere, even though many days it doesn't feel like that. And so for you, our lives are going somewhere. There's an end for which you and I have been made, and the end is nothing less than this to be divinized. A couple of weeks ago, perhaps like many of you, I, as well as seemingly billions of people in the face of the earth, watched Tiger Woods' speech, whatever that was. And in the middle of it, he alluded to his uh, Buddhist upbringing. And without oversimplifying it, one of the tenets of Buddhism is that The key to life is to flee from all desire. Desire is the enemy of happiness. We become unhappy because we desire. We will be happy to the extent that we can not desire. That's not Christianity at all. The problem is not that you and I desire too much. The problem is you and I don't desire enough. God made you and me to be divinized. And I'm content with whatever it is that I'm content with, which is so much less than being divinized. C.S. Lewis, the great Englishman who was once an atheist who came to know Jesus and then wrote so many books, he's probably the most widely read Christian author of the 20th century. Lewis put it this way. He said, we're all like children who are being offered an opportunity to go on vacation to the ocean and stay in this tremendous resort, and we're playing in a puddle of mud, and we're happy. That's us. The Lord's offering us the seaside resort, and we're like, no, I'm fine right here, wallowing in the mud. Thank you. That's what God desires for us. He wants this so much, he did that. He became man so that he could shed every last drop of his blood. When his sight is pierced as he hangs upon the cross and the blood and water flows out, it tells us he literally has nothing left to give. There's nothing else he can do. There's no other sign he can give us. He's given it all. That's how much he wants this. That's his desire. So how does that happen? How does God's desire come to fruition? The desire that all men and women be saved. The desire that we come to know him. Not know about him or not only know about him, but to know him, to enter into this profound friendship, which as we've heard from Mary and from Janet and from so many of us who could stand up, from Augustine, Alone can transform a life in the way that a friendship with God can. How does it happen? Well, again, St. Paul, in his letter to the Christians who lived in Rome, put it this way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he asks, how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? Like many people, I'm of the opinion that we are living right now in an extraordinary time. A time that I think, historically anyway, is as much like Paul's time and Peter's time and Andrew's time and James's time and Matthew's time and John's time as any time in history. Because Paul was surrounded by people in his everyday life who literally had never heard of Jesus. Ever. And he was entrusted with the task of By his words and by the witness of his life, making him known, we now date the year to him. That's how effective he was at this, together with all the men and women whom the Lord poured out his spirit upon. But like them, you and I, too, are surrounded by people who have never really heard of Jesus. They might have read the Da Vinci Code. They might have watched, you know, a special on the Discovery Channel at Easter time. But they've never heard of him from somebody who knows him. Go through the list of the people that you encounter on a daily basis. And I'll bet you can quickly come up with people who you could say that that's true about. They've never heard of him from somebody who actually has a friendship with him. So who's Paul referring to in this passage? Who is it that's been sent? Well, certainly it applies to those of us who've been ordained, deconvinced. Father Stanley, Father Servo, Father White, myself, Deacon Tim, Deacon Don, in particular way people like Archbishop Vigneron, but it doesn't simply apply to us. It applies to all of us with different foci, if you will, or focuses, we would say in English, I guess. And you don't have to wait for me or for Deacon Vince or for Father Oservo or Father White or Father Stanley to ask you to do this. Jesus already asked you to do this. He asked you to do this. He sent you when you were baptized and he sends you again at the ending of every mass. As I repeat, I'm sure ad nauseum to many of you. When I was a kid, the seven happiest words of my life were the Mass masses ended, go in peace. That was if I heard the ending of the Mass, which when I was a teenager I didn't. But that doesn't mean we're done now, you can go home. Some of us remember the Latin translation. This is the part I know that's I'm sorry. But the ending of the Mass in Latin is Ite Misa s. What's that mean? That's great if you know Latin, but most of us don't know Latin anymore. So what's that mean? It means she is sent. Who's the she? The church. Who's the church? You. All of us. Together, who've been baptized and become members of the body of Christ. We're the church. What are we sent to do? Preach. Don't think this preacher that Paul's talking about is confined to somebody in a collar. Every single one of us is commissioned, that is sent by the Lord to bear witness, perhaps first and foremost, to what happens in this place, around that altar. What happens around this altar? What happens around this altar is that sacrifice, which happened once and for all, is made present again, so that you and I become contemporaries of it. The way some of the saints used to pray, or to encourage us to pray it during Lent, is that the wounds of Christ would become fresh. That's a great image. May the wounds of Christ become fresh again, not scabbed over. Doesn't mean he's suffering. On the cross, he's done, he's risen, he's suffered once and for all. But when we come to Mass, we become witnesses of this again, of the fact that God is so incredibly in love with us, that it was his joy to do that. Figure that out. It was his joy to go through all the suffering and the mockery and the taunts and the humiliations so that you and I could be saved. We're witnesses of that when we come here. And then we're driven out of here by the Lord into a world which is far darker than this church to tell people the good news. The good news is God is incredibly in love with you. Far more than you could ever, ever, ever dare to imagine. Why is that threatening? That's the good news. And we're all sent to tell people of that. And in fact, the sending that happens at Mass, you're sending as as lay men and women. How many people, raise your hand, how many people don't know what a lay man or a woman is? We use these terms all the time. So what's a lay person? A lay person is somebody who's not ordained and they're not religious. That is pretty much all of you. It doesn't mean religious like you don't have any faith, it just means you not you don't wear a veil and a habit, huh? There is a unique task, a unique commissioning, which God has for you, a unique expectation that He has for you, even as He has a unique expectation for those of us who are ordained. For whatever reason, over the last 30 or 40 years, and many of us have lived through this much longer than me, experienced it much more deeply than I, there has existed within the church something like a sense of competition or a sense of threatening between those who are ordained and the lay faithful. That's got to die. That is not of God. We are all brothers and sisters with unique responsibilities to be sure, but we are those who have been baptized into Christ's death, the body of Christ. And again, he gives to each one of us particular things that he asks us to do. He gives us each our own charisms. But the competition in the sense of threatened or being threatened or feeling threatened has got to go. That's one of the huge obstacles to the gospel getting heard. You and I are called to work together always, all the time. Particularly as pastor, huh? I'm entrusted with some things that I have to do. I have to lead. i got to lead listening to the Lord. That doesn't mean I'm just going to let everybody do whatever we want. We have guidelines that are confined by what the scriptures reveal to us, to be sure. But we got to pray that the Lord will continue to unite and to heal us. Starting first here as a parish family at Our Lady of Good Counsel and then spreading wider throughout the Archdiocese of Detroit and then wider yet throughout the whole church. So many people talk about Rome or the hierarchy as if it's some fiendish entity We got to kill that We got to ask the holy spirit to convict us of where we've seen something or where we have something in our own lives. that has got to go So we are all entrusted with these tasks paul and again in his letter to the ephesians He puts it this way. This is a passage that i've been praying about for Months now, which I keep finding to be so helpful He says this in chapter 4 christ's gifts were that some should be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, which is God's desire, huh? that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That doesn't mean you get the right answer to the quiz. That's not the knowledge of the truth. The truth is Jesus, a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. So our task, perhaps simplified, but the way Paul puts it in Ephesians, our task, those of us who are ordained, is to equip you. And who are you in Paul's passage here? You are the saints. That's who you are. Our task is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the expectation right there. How do we do that? We do it in many ways, we do it, you know, perhaps primarily through the celebration of the sacraments and through preaching and teaching. Other ways, to be sure, but that's the main thing that we do. We're ordained to serve you and to equip you in that way. But it's done for a purpose. You know, when I was a kid and I came to Mass, I had no idea that what was happening up here had something to do with my life when I left here. I just thought it was something I was obliged to come to. If I didn't, I'd go to hell. That's not what this is about. This is about you and me coming hearing the Lord speak, feeding upon him, becoming contemporaries of his death and resurrection, being equipped, if you will, so as to be sent out for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry belongs in a unique way to you, not to me. It doesn't belong exclusively to you, it belongs uniquely to you. To be sure, not just when I'm in a sanctuary, but when I'm anywhere, I'm supposed to live the life that the Lord's asked me to live. But you are always in that world out there. That is your place. That's where the Lord's put you. That's where you're supposed to be shining, in that world. And we come here so as to be strengthened by him, so as to be able to do that. So what's the work of ministry that you're equipped to do? Well, at least perhaps simplified, but sticking with our theme anyway, the work of ministry is simply this. To be light. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Remember last night we talked about that red light that burns up there? Who changes that light, by the way? Has it ever been changed? You get one of those lifelong light bulbs or something like that? I don't know how that happens. I mean, we can't even get the cobwebs down. I'm not sure how you get the light changed. But even as we think of that red light atop the church that everybody can see as they drive by... That's how we're supposed to think of ourselves. We're cities set on a hill, collectively and individually. That's the expectation that we would be light. In that same passage in Matthew 5, Jesus goes on to say, "Let your light so shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." What does it mean to be light? What's light do? It helps people see obviously light enables people to better see so last night and tonight as we come into church it's a little awkward at times huh it's dark in here if you're not real sure of your step might be a little fearful you might find yourself sitting next to somebody that you never would have thought you'd be sitting next to or if the lights were on you wouldn't be sitting next to you might have found someone sitting in your pew one of these people who doesn't belong to Our Lady of Good Counsel who decided to show up for our mission. They're in your pew because they couldn't see your name on the pew, which you've written there because it's dark. You know, the purpose of the lights off is not, you know, to have a nice little ambiance and to not let you see Janet or Mary or, or even me. The purpose is to help us understand what it is that Jesus is saying. The world is dark. It's much darker than this church. And you and I are expected by him To help people better see. We're supposed to be like these candles behind me that brightly burn. Simply by your presence, people are supposed to see better. Simply by your presence, somebody's supposed to better know who God is. Simply by your presence, someone's supposed to better understand what this thing called life is really all about. The picture in our... uh, prayer card is one of these little lamps. So Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel basket. Why not? Because that would be stupid. That's why. (laughs) It would be absolutely stupid. Why would you light a lamp and put it underneath a basket? This is the lamp he's talking about. These are replicas of the first century lamps that they used to use at the time of Jesus. They're filled with olive oil. They have little wicks inside of them. We just filled them up again tonight because they burn. When they burn out, they're gone. You need more oil. What's Jesus saying? No one lights a lamp, puts it underneath a basket. What's he do? He, He lights a lamp or she lights a lamp and they put it on a stand. Why? So the people can see. That's why. So that all in the house can see. And the way Jesus is talking about this, he's making clear from the imagery that this little lamp, which you carry in your hand, it's a hand lamp. That's what it is is you and me. Who's the hand? He is. What's the house? The world. Not the church, the world. And just like uh, the man or the woman of the house puts a lamp, we know this when the power goes out, huh? The East Coast right now, after all the snowfall, no power. What do they got? They got candles burning or flashlights. So on times like that, and certainly at the time of Jesus, what'd you do? You walk into a house when it's dark out, you put one of these, and whichever room you go into, and only that room, it begins to light up. And all of a sudden, people who might have been fearful or afraid or unsure what was in the room, now they can begin to see. Jesus is saying in that passage, you gotta let me take you in my hand and let me walk wherever I wanna walk into whatever room of the house today I wanna go, the house be in the world. And wherever I bring you, you have to shine. That's why you're in my hand. That's first of all why I lit you and it's why I have you in my hand so that you can be a means by which people can better see. And this happens in as many ways as I can think of. I'll give you an example of one. I told you last night about this miraculous healing that my mother went through. Our mother, my sister's here again. So my mom went from quasi being an invalid to becoming extraordinarily active. She was perfectly healed for probably about 18 years. And then shortly before I was ordained, just as quickly as all the pain left, it all came back. My mom never comes to church here because she can't easily get into a car. She can't easily do anything, actually. My mom's always really bent over. Only a son can tell the story about his mother, whom she knows he loves. So my oldest sister was taking my mom someplace one time it was winter time she has this kind of imitation fur coat she had it on she has white hair and she's hunched over in the passenger seat and my oldest sister's paying the ticket for the garage and the uh, the parking attendant says oh i love your dog <laughs> and my sister says my dog that's my mom she's like oh i'm so sorry <laughs> That gives you an idea of how bent over my mom is. You can't see the skin when she wears a coat. I tell you all that because uh, my mom obviously knows that God could heal her. He did once for pretty much several decades. She lived no pain. Probably the most erect person I've ever seen. She had this perfect posture. I have terrible posture. She had perfect posture. The epitome of class is my mom. And now she's bent like the woman in the Gospels who's bent over that we read about. She's in around-the-clock pain, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. She's on the strongest pain medication you can take. It does nothing. She hardly sleeps. She hardly eats. My dad spends all day long caring for her. Tremendous witness of what love looks like. So she knows that the Lord could heal her if he wanted to. But for whatever reason, he chooses not to. Can you imagine? I get a headache, and I'm a bear. But at least I go to bed, and I know tomorrow I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to be better. Some of us had the flu for the last couple of months, and we're miserable. At least those of us who are men. <laughs> we're miserable. But we know, you know, I'm on the z pack now, or I'm on whatever. I'm going to get better five days. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to, you know, there's something coming. My mom doesn't have that. There's no tomorrow or the next week or maybe one day I'm going to wake up. She knows every day when she goes to bed, if she gets to bed, that when she wakes up the next day, she's going to be the same way. Until the Lord calls her home, she's going to be in pain. That's her life. She knows it. And she is the most joyful person I know. She learned and she's taught us and everybody who knows her what St. Paul writes in what has to be one of the most mysterious passages in all the scriptures where Paul says, I fill up, I, Paul, fill up in my own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Huh? I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? What's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Is Paul saying Jesus could have only held out for a little while longer? Man, it really could have kicked in redemption. No, of course not. The only thing lacking is my participation in it your participation in it. There's one Redeemer. His name's Jesus. And yet Paul clearly says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he cooperates with Jesus in the work of redemption. My mother bears witness to the fact. She's like this lamp in the Lord's hands, especially to those who are suffering. And if we're not now, we will soon, in one way or another. She bears witness to the truth that suffering is what redeemed the world. Jesus didn't save the world by his teaching or by his stories, or by his miracles. He saved the world by his passion, by his suffering, by his death, and his resurrection. This is one of those rooms in the world which is the church which so needs to be enlightened. Think of all of us here in this room who are suffering in one way or another. Suffering physically right now, maybe we're suffering from getting older, we're not able to do some of the things we once used to do, we got aches and pains we never used to have. We're suffering from the loss of loved ones, we're suffering from difficulties in relationships, out of work, all the different ways that we're suffering in here. We can either do something with that or we can just waste it. I usually waste it. But my mom is like this lamp that the Lord brings into the rooms of those of us who are suffering and reminds me and reminds everybody, if I will unite this to the Lord, then I, like Paul, can fill up in my own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ and it can help other people. And so my mom keeps legal pads of names Names of people that she loves, names of people that she's never heard of, except I've called her and say, hey, will you pray for so-and-so? There's a good chance that many of your names are on these legal pads. They're only first names, don't worry. And she just prays. She just says every day, Jesus, I unite all that I'm going through for these people. Probably starting with her husband and her children, but for all of us. And one day, we're going to know the fruit Not only of her prayers, but the fruit of all the prayers of all the people who, when they're suffering, say something similar to Jesus. Jesus, I am convinced this is not a waste. I am convinced this is not in vain. I am convinced that you are using this. Even though it looked like that was just a man hanging on a cross, getting executed like any other man at the time of Pontius Pilate, it wasn't. The world was being redeemed there. And when you and I suffer... Somehow we're cooperating with him in the work of redemption again in a world which on this topic suffering is so dark It's feared more than death by many people. I just don't want to suffer death wouldn't be bad I'd be gone But I don't want to suffer This helps us better see that it can be used Is it romantic? Heck no. Is it fun? Absolutely not Would you rather do something else? I'm sure But she helps me and others better see that when, not if, when suffering comes my way, I can do something with it. And though it may not feel all that good, it can be used for extraordinarily noble purposes. Let me just touch real quick on um, the way the church words the Lord's expectation of you. Clearly, Vatican II, this council which took place back in the early and mid-60s, is still, for all of our lifetimes, the most significant event in the church. It caused and continues to cause tremendous confusion as to what it was really all about. Church historians say that it typically takes about 100 years for a church council to be felt, for its purpose to really sink in. We're 40 years removed. We just got out of adolescence, if you're a man. I think a man gets out of adolescence about 35. Happened at about 40 for me, but. So we're still in the early stages of this council, huh? But Paul VI, who was the Pope who continued the council after John XXIII, who called the council died, said this about the council. He said the council could be definitively summed up under a single heading, and this is the heading to make the church of the 20th century ever better fitted for proclaiming the gospel to the people of the 20th century. To make the church of the 20th century ever better fitted to proclaim the gospel to the people of the 20th century. That's what the Pope, who carried on the work of the council and was there, understood to be the purpose. Everything else fits into that in some way or other. And among the many novelties of Vatican II, and there are many, is this, it's the first time there was ever a document written about you. First time there was ever a church document on the laity. Never before had there been one. And there have been many since, both by Pope John Paul II especially, also by Paul VI, all talking about what it is that the Lord expects of you, his sons and daughters, who have been lit on fire by his Holy Spirit who dwells within you and within me. That document on... Laity would be very worth reading. Might be a great exercise if you're still looking for something worthwhile to read during Lent, that might be worth picking up. It's called in English the Decree on the Laity. Pretty hard to find. Vatican II, Decree on the Laity, Google, boom, you're there. And in those documents, we find this teaching, this wording, if you will, of the Lord's expectation of you who are members of his body. This is now the uniqueness of your mission, the uniqueness of his expectation for you, is that you would first evangelize and second sanctify the world starting with your world starting with your home and second that you would engage in temporal affairs the things that happen in the world around us and renew them according to God's plan that's the expectation that you would evangelize and that you would sanctify those two words might either scare the living daylights out of us or make us just go, okay, what does that mean? And if you're sitting there going, okay, what does that mean? Then you've got to come back tomorrow because we're going to talk about how we actually do that tomorrow and Wednesday. But for tonight, anyway, let's end with this thought. The essence of evangelization for our purposes tonight, the essence of evangelization is the proclamation of salvation in Jesus Christ and the response of the person who hears it in faith all under the action of the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? The essence of evangelization is us telling people, telling, quote-unquote, either in our words or by the way we live our lives, or by both, actually, the difference Jesus makes. The essence of evangelization is being intentionally, from the moment I wake up until the moment I go to bed, a disciple of Jesus. It's to have the goal to let him shine in me to get out of his way, to help other people better to see. And the Lord not only expects this of us, but the world longs for it. Even though they may not know it, and even though they may say otherwise, because that song of Augustine is the song of every single man and woman. My heart wrestles and is restless for God. Every heart is restless for God. That's how he's made us. Whether we think that's true or not doesn't really matter. You can think the world is flat. You're perfectly entitled to think that way. You're wrong. The world is not flat. And you can think that there is some point to life other than to know God, and you're perfectly entitled to think that way. You will be wrong. Because God has made us all. You think he did that for a few of us? His desire, what he wants, what he longs for, is for everybody to know him. So can I ask once again for the evangelization team at Our Lady of Good Counsel to stand? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that looks a little better. If you don't know these words, you can join me with praying through my voice, Christ. Be in the eyes of all who see me, in the ears of all who hear me, on the lips of all who speak of me. Christ, be in the minds of all who think of me. Christ, be in the hearts of all who love me. Christ, be before me and behind me. Christ, be above me and beneath me. Christ, on my right and on my left. Christ, be my all. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: A traditional part of Father Ricardo's parish missions is a personal testimony by a parishioner. On this second evening, in this darkened worship space, the attendees heard this.
2: Good evening. My name is Janet. I am a member of the Evangelization Commission. I grew up Catholic and always had a relationship with Jesus, but until a few years ago, I never understood how deep that friendship could be. Since I have started to truly love the Lord, I have been happier and more at peace than ever. For me, it has given meaning, purpose, and significance to everyday challenges and joys. When I was young, I saw Jesus in my grandma, who took St. Paul's direction to pray constantly, to heart. Her prayer book was so worn that the pages and prayer cards were held together by rubber bands. Sometimes, even in mid-conversation with her, she'd pick up her book and start praying. Whenever I would visit my grandma and ask how she was feeling, she would respond enthusiastically in her thick Polish accent, Nothing hurts me, Janet. I love my Jesus. I love my Jesus. At the time, I didn't quite understand why she didn't just say, I love Jesus. But now I'm beginning to understand. As I begin to find my own relationship with the Lord, I am more willing to live my faith openly. Now, some people around me didn't quite know what to do with that, I got a strong sense, mostly from the tone of their statements, that they were thinking, Wow, she's one of those religious freaks. Or, Boy, you sure do a lot of church stuff. I found myself saying to them emphatically, No, it's not like that. It was becoming pretty clear that evangelization was more than simply talking about faith. As I continued to go about my daily life and praying more often, some bumps in the road came along that before would have had me pull the covers over my head and hide. My friends that have known me a long time would ask how I was doing. I would reply, a little to my surprise as well, that I was fine. I trust God, and he has blessed me with so much. With the support of the wonderful people in my life and my personal relationship and trust in God, I am okay. Time passed, and they would ask again, but it was more of a challenge. No, really, how are you? Again, I would respond with, I'm fine. I'm praying, and God really does know what is best for me, and he will direct my path. Psalm 37 tells us, if you find your delight in the Lord, he will grant your heart's desire. Commit your life to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. When I joined the EC, I was asked to commit to praying in front of our Lord at adoration one hour a week. At first, to be honest, I thought it would be just one more thing I had to fit into my schedule. Now I understand the psalm, which reads, Be still before the Lord and wait in patience. Since I have made that commitment to Jesus, I feel that something would be missing if I didn't get there. Part of what first drew me to the EC was the opportunity to share my love of Jesus and hear the same from others in a nice, small, welcoming group. Then I was asked to talk with all of you, and my first thought was, no, no thank you. Yet here I am, by God's grace, among friends in a slightly larger welcoming group. Which brings me back to my friends. Not that long ago, one of my closest friends was going through some challenges of her own. I asked if she was going to Mass on Sundays, which I had a feeling she wasn't. She answered no, and with tone said, I know it is your thing, and that's great, but it's not for me. It just isn't me, and it won't be my saving grace. I think it was within a week or two that I was about to enter the day chapel and was turning my cell phone off when I received a text message from my friend. It read, went to confession last night with my kids. I cried the whole time. I immediately picked my chin up off the floor and called my husband. I was smiling as I prayed before the blessed sacrament. The funny thing was I almost felt God winking at me saying, see Janet, see what I can do. Again, be still before the Lord. And wait in patience. As I was praying about what the Lord wanted me to share with you tonight, I kept coming back to the time that I found out on Good Friday of the year 2000 that I was pregnant with my first child. When I went to tell my parents the great news, my dad asked how I felt. I said, besides feeling nauseous, great. I admitted that a part of me felt a bit silly though. He asked why, and I told him that I was very giddy and I felt as though I was the only pregnant person in the world. He said, you are. You are the only woman pregnant with that baby. That's how I would describe my relationship with Jesus. It is very personal and unique to me. It is growing and changing every day, and I love sharing it. I know that, just as with my children, God has a will and a plan for me, and it is my job to be open to it, to listen, to come closer to him. I understand now why my grandma said, I love my Jesus. I can't have my grandma's relationship with Jesus, as beautiful as it was, any more than any of you could be pregnant with my child. But now, I better understand my own relationship with Jesus, and I can't wait for you to know Him too.
0: This has been Christ is the Answer program number 812. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store, or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 734-930-4506 for program number 812. 2010, turning up the flame mission number 2. What does God expect from us? Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.